This is an oral history interview with Joyce McClooney for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Washington Law Offices of Alston and Byrd, where Joyce does special projects for Senator Robert Dole. Today is Wednesday, January 23rd, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Joyce, let's start with a little bit of your own personal background and how you eventually got to Washington. Okay. I was born and raised in D.C. area. Um, as a matter of fact, I went to high school right up the street from here, so it's kind of like my career has gone full circle. And um, I started out working at the Department of State, and then I, I was married at the time, started to have children, took off for three years. My husband and I split up. Then I decided I needed to go back because I was responsible for the three kids, and I ended up working at the Department of Commerce in a career position worked my way up to a GS-10. Then I was asked to go to the White House under President Carter, and I was working with a lady by the name of Ann Wexler, who became assistant to the president for public liaison. And I was there for almost three years, and then they had the election, and Ronald Reagan became president. I was lucky enough to stay with that administration for six months, and Elizabeth Dole came in, and she was then assistant to the president for public liaison. I did not know her before that, did not know Senator Dole before that, and um, so she wanted me to stay to help set up the office for at least six months, which I did, and uh, then she had her, her husband came over one afternoon, and I had probably a minute's notice that I was going to meet him and talk to him about a possible position up on the Hill. And so he came in, she left, he and I sat down and chatted, and it was remarkable that, you know, we just hit it off from, from day one. The position, um, it was unclear at the time what he really wanted me to do, so I had to have lunch with Betty Meyer and Joanne Coe up on the hill, and um, I had the lunch, and I, the position was going to be working with Betty, uh, doing his appointments which I had already done that, really didn't want to do that, really wanted to grow and do something different that I had not already done. And uh, I turned the position down. And I thought I was crazy at the time because I really needed to, to have a position. And most of the key positions around the D.C. area were already spoken for because the Democrats had left. They, were, they um, landed you know, positions that I probably could have done but because I was now working for the Reagan administration, there was no place for me to really go. And so they kept me on until I was able to find a position, which I thought was very nice of them to do that. And um, I got a call from Joanne to say that there was an opening at the Finance Committee. And would I be interested in that? So I went in and I talked to Bob Lighthizer, was then the head of the Finance Committee. And so um, that's the position that I took. And um, it, it took a while for people to trust me only because they knew I had worked for President Carter. So it took about six months, and it finally you know, worked its way out. Um, Senator Dole, though, on my first day at work, called me down to his office and gave me little projects to work on. Well, that didn't hit it off well with the staff because not many people met with the senator on the first day, especially somebody from the Finance Committee. So, you know, they, that was another part that they really didn't trust. 
And what he really wanted me to do was to set up kind of like breakfast meetings with the members of the finance committee and business leaders on different topics. He knew that I had done that when I was at the White House, and he thought this was a good idea for me to be involved with that. So I worked with Senator Long's office because he was the ranking member of the Finance Committee at the time. And so we did a lot of those, and they became very successful. Um, We would do energy groups, we would do trade groups, we would do business groups, and all of this had to do with legislation that the Finance Committee, you know, was working on, and um, it worked out, it worked out fine. Um, Then he decided that he wanted to become leader. So Joanne and the senator worked on that exclusively. Because when you want to become leader, you have to write letters, you have to meet with senators. And um, that was back in 1984. Yeah, 1984. The elections were in November of that year. I think it was November of that year. And um, he was elected. So then everybody in the Finance Committee thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Because um, the people at the committee level, they're more specialized in that particular piece of legislation. And so he called everybody together, the senator called everybody together, and said that he really couldn't promise anybody a position, but that he would help them in whatever they really wanted to do. He would write letters of recommendations. Uh, He would receive telephone calls if that's the way they wanted it. And most of the attorneys did go back to um, private practice all over the country. A lot of them did not stay in this area. Some then later became lobbyists. So then um, still wasn't sure what was going to happen to me. Um, So one day I got a call from Sheila Burke because she and Rod had moved over to the leader's office. And it was all new to us. It was all new to the senator. It's all new to Sheila and Rod because nobody really had worked in an office like that to know how to set it up. So I went over and they wanted me to become office manager, you know, which I did. So we were able to set up the office, hire the staff, and, um, you know, get the day-to-day operation, you know, running. And, and what I did was I was the kind of like liaison person between the heart staff, which is the personal staff, the leader staff, and his pack his Dole for Senate people, um, Campaign America, um, Better America Foundation that he also set up. And so I received all the mail from the hard office, would then put it into the senator for his review. I would get all the information back and would have to pass it out to various staff people. So I would have to keep track of all the mail. Anytime he went um, on a outside trip, outside the D.C. area, I was the person that collected all the information for him to take for that particular speech or that particular campaign that he was, you know, he would campaign for a lot of the other senators. So I was the person that had control over all of that, so I had to talk to everybody, give them deadlines as to when, you know, they needed to get information into me so that I could put everything together for him before he went out on the road. I also did the um, speaking engagements that he did locally. All the paperwork would come to me, I would put it together, and um, then he would be ready to go out and you know, give, give the speech. And then I was responsible for uh, filing all of those papers, because from time to time we would have to go back, pull out information from those packets and put it into another speech or another trip or you know, whatever. 
And then um, I was responsible for setting up meetings with Senator Dole, the leadership, the chairman's meetings, chairmen of all the committees. And uh, the leadership would meet at least once, once a week, which was on Tuesdays. That was the day that they had their lunches. The Democrats had their lunches on Tuesday. Republicans had their lunches on Tuesday, which lasted a couple of hours to go over legislation. That was just the leadership, or was that it was the leadership? Oh. And then we started to include the chairman of all the committees, Republicans, mm-hmm. and so we started to include them. And then we set up a system as to when we would meet, so I could let those offices know that on such and such a date, you know, we're going to have a meeting. And um, I had to keep a record of all the senators that showed up for that and the particular agenda items that they were going to talk about. I also had to prepare his day book. His day book was any time he had a meeting with anybody, there had to be a piece of paper about that meeting. And we had to have it the night before so that he could review it either the night before the meeting or the morning of the meeting. And then as, as the day would go on, he would call um, senators to over to his office to have meetings with, to talk about legislation. I always called the office the Crisis Control Center because we were always putting out fires. We didn't start the legislation. We were kind of there once it hit the Senate floor. And if it was something that they wanted to get passed, they would have to break it up into little meetings with senators. There again, I would have to keep records of of all of that. And then I remember during um, the health issues when Hillary Clinton, you know, was going to do universal health care for everybody, um, Senator Dole decided to bring in outside health groups in to talk to uh, various senators. And so I was responsible for setting up those breakfast meetings, and we did those on a regular basis, like maybe once a month, once every two months. And then it started to expand where we wanted to get the message out on what the Republicans were doing as far as health care. So then we invited all the um, major anchors, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, to come in for breakfast meetings so that they could sit, the senators could sit down with Senator Dole and the anchors to kind of like get the message out to different people. I remember when CNN started, um, Senator Dole hosted um, for Bernie Shaw a reception, and we invited a lot of senators, both Republican and Democrats, over, you know, just to have a nice little reception for him, and that turned out nice. So I did all the breakfast meetings, all the lunches, all the receptions in the evening. Um, I had to set that all up for the senator, in addition to setting up the individual senators' meetings the leadership meetings, and it happened a lot. I mean, there was no, there was no set schedule as far as legislation was was happening. You just had to go with whenever it happened. And he would call a meeting on the spur of the moment. Um, sometimes he would have three meetings going on at the same time: one in his office, one in the conference room, and one in the reception room. So senators were coming in and out constantly. And then there again, you know, I would have to know what the subject matter was in order to let the senator's offices know, you know, how they they had to be prepared for the meeting so I would know what the different agenda items were. Um, and basically that's what I did, you know, for him in the leader's office. I learned a lot. Um, you do when you're working with him. You learned how, sometimes why he works with just the Republicans and then why he works with the Democrats. 
Um, and it, it was very interesting to watch, you know, how he, how he kind of like did that. And of course we had a lot of the White House people over to attend a lot of these meetings, a lot of these receptions, uh, because it was important, you know, to have their input. And um, Senator Simpson was always there it, when he was, you know, in char- second person in charge. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Um, but it was, it was very interesting, really interesting. So to follow this story through to its conclusion then, uh, at some point your association came to an end? It came to an end. Um, in 1994 they had another election. And at that particular time the Democrats were in control. And uh, then Senator Dole became leader. And um, Howard Green, he appointed Howard Green, Sergeant at Arms, Sheila Burke temporarily as Secretary of the Senate. And Howard and the Senator sat down, and Howard was interested in hiring me as the Deputy Sergeant at Arms for his office. And the Senator thought about it, and it took a little while, but he finally said it was okay that I could move upstairs, which was great because that was one of the positions in the Senate that, you know, that was one of my goals was to reach that office. Because I worked with that Sergeant at Arms office a lot, Secretary of the Senate's office a lot, so I knew a lot of the people. I knew where a lot of the bodies were buried up there, how people, you know, got their positions. Um, And I knew the... um, functions of the, of the sergeant arms office because I had to work with the individual offices while I was in the leader's office. So then I became deputy sergeant at arms, um, which was, it was great. I mean, it was wonderful. It was a lot of work. And um, I basically did the day-to-day and also did protocol duties because that was part of the deputy, I mean, the sergeant at arms office. Describe and sat on boards. What are the protocol duties? Protocol, any time a head of state, a former president would come in, we would have to escort them. The State of the Union, um, Howard would go down as the uh, sergeant arms, and then I would walk over, the senators, over to the House chamber any time they had a joint session or the State of the Union. Um, so we were constantly busy with that, and most of the time um, the different government officials would come in most of the time the morning or early afternoon so you had to work your day around that and we had a huge budget I think at that particular time it was a hundred million dollars because the sergeant arms offices is what is still in charge of all the services for the senators the, the telephones the computers the post office the uh, tour guides just the inner workings of the entire senate and then I sat in, sat in on, I was part of two boards, which was the Capitol Police Board, because that came under the jurisdiction of the sergeant in arms. And then um, another board under the Secretary of the Senate. The Secretary of the Senate was in charge of the school for the pages, but the sergeant in arms office was responsible for the dorm where they stayed. And it was interesting how the two, you know, kind of interact. So we sat in on those meetings to try to make sure that everything was running properly. So, and and what caused you to retire from that position? I was ready to. I was ready to retire. I had 29 years of service, and there was another change because Senator Lott then became majority leader. And Senator Lott had called me down to his office and said that he would still like for me to stay in the Sergeant Arms office, but he couldn't guarantee that I could remain in the deputy position. 
So they offered me the AA position, which was the administrative assistant, which was the number three person, um, basically doing almost the same duties that I did before. Um, but the new sergeant at arms and I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of the, th- lot of the problems that we had in the sergeant at arms office. And I just said to him one day, I said, well, I, I just can't work like this and I'm going to hand in my resignation. So I had 29 years service and I figured that I would just retire. And so I left in November of 90, 96, I guess it was. Yeah, no, Before November. or after Howard? Uh, oh no, I was still, I was, Howard left, I remained, um, they did not give me the title, I just remained as Deputy Sergeant Arms, and there wasn't really that much time before Senator Lott had put in someone to replace Howard. So, um, I mean, Senator Lott was great to me, you know, and I still would go down and have meetings in his office, and, you know, I would give him the history on some of the things that he was interested in. And um, so it worked out fine. So I left there, and I was going to retire and just do volunteer work. And I received a call from the senator asking me if I would want to come back and work with him on a temporary basis to close the presidential office. So I said, sure, I'm not really doing anything as long as he paid for my parking, and that's what he did. And I ended up coming in probably twice a week and there was so much to be done. When a campaign is over, they leave everything on their desk, everything on their floor. Nobody cleans up anything, and they had a huge office. So I was responsible for looking over the mail, trying to get that all sorted out. Um, all the videotapes, all the tapings, I mean, you name it, you know, we had to kind of like tag it up and send it out to the Dole Institute. And then he deci- then Senator Dole decided that maybe Ruth Ann, who had worked with the senator um, in doing his mail um, the ch- and his um, sent out his photographs and his autographs, which she had been doing ever since he was a House member. And she had retired from the Senate around the same time that I did. And uh, she worked in the personal office. And um, he asked me to call her to see if she'd be interested in coming in and helping. So what ended up, a part-time job, ended up being five days a week for both Ruth Ann and I because there was that much to kind of like go through. And then we sorted the mail, and he, Senator Dole, then decided, well, let me call some people um, that I should have talked to during the campaign. And most of those were kids. You know, he, he talked to the kids, and they were shocked that um, he received, that they received a telephone call, you know, from him. And he enjoyed it. I mean, he liked to be with people. And, um, I mean, it was just great, you know. So we closed we closed that office. And then he was asked to go to Werner Lifford Law Firm. It was more of a lobbying law firm. And so he asked Ruth Ann and Mo and myself to go with him. And um, we said, sure. And so none of us knew what we were going to do. And that was probably, I don't remember the time frame on that. It, was, it took a while to close the office. It probably took about three months to close the office. And then we had probably a month to close the final part of that office so that we could then move over to the law firm. So then we had to call Brian Kalpin, who was the archivist for the Dole Institute, to come up and help us decide what should go out to the Dole Institute and what should not go out to the Dole Institute. 
So then we, we moved, we got settled in, and then Senator Dole was asked to chair the um, National World War II Memorial. And so he asked me if I would be interested in working on that project with him, and I said I would love to work, you know, on something like that. And he said it would just be a short time, you know, nothing to it. You know, all we have to do is raise the money. Well, seven years later, <laughs> um, it took that long. And, and they did it the wrong way. What they did was they asked the senator to be chairman before they had a design approved. Normally you have all your ducks in a row, and they didn't do that at this particular time. So we had to fight a lot of the battles in the press. There was a movement, there was a little organization in the D.C. area, uh, that, which was called Save the Mall. And they were opposed to how large they felt the memorial was going to be. And so ev they fought the campaign people every step of the way, and we ended up you know, fighting it out in the press. We had to get the press people behind us, get the American people behind us, and, um, you know, show why we really should, you know, do this memorial. And then there's so many different commissions that they had to get approval from that, you know, I would go to all those meetings, because I was really the liaison person between Senator Dole and the campaign staff the World War II Memorial Campaign staff. So I would meet with them on a regular basis. I met with the executive director once a week, and then they would have a meeting once a month with all of the different directors that they had because we had a director for corporate, we had a director for foundations, a director for uh, direct mail, and then there was the secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission, and we would all get together and they would all give a status report as to where we were where we were going and how long it was going to take. So we all kind of like worked together. Then the, uh, the campaign staff then hired Burston Marstetler as their PR organization. Then they started to be involved in a lot of the um, things that we, were, that we were trying to get, you know, passed through the different commissions. And we then ended up setting up a conference call once a month with all all of the top people um, to try to come up with a strategy as to how we should attack the the organization that was against you know the memorial so the campaign staff decided that they needed to change what the memorial looked like and so they had the uh, designer um, change it and they would take it to the different commissions and at the end of the day, it was finally approved, but there was a lot of tweaking that had to go on. And the Save the Mall people were still against the memorial, so we, that was, we had to fight all the time. Well, Senator Dole decided that this was taking entirely too long, and he, he wanted the, the process speeded up. Oh, and I forgot to mention that Senator Dole, probably after he had been there six months, um, decided that we needed a co-chairman, so we as at the campaign, people pulled together a list of names and had Senator Dole take a look at them. And then he decided that Fred Smith, he really did not know him. He knew of him. His wife knew him a lot um, because he was involved in giving money to the Red Cross, FedEx was. And she said that he was a great guy. So Senator asked him to come in to sit down and, and talk to him to find out if he'd be interested in being the co-chair. And he said that he would be interested. 
Um, he had relatives that had fought in World War II, and this was a special thing for him. And because Fred Smith's background um, with FedEx, sitting on the business roundtable, he knew a lot of the, the corporate CEOs that Senator Dole did not know because the business community was changing. The old guard, old guard was leaving. The new guard was coming in. So it was a good compliment. The people that Fred Smith knew helped Senator Dole, and the people that Senator Dole knew helped Fred Smith. And we ended up setting up conference calls. Instead of having them go on the road and go to the individual companies, we decided that it might not be a bad idea to try to do a conference call between the senator, between Fred Smith, and the CEO. And the corporate staff would do that by sending out a letter under Fred Smith's signature, Senator Dole's signature, to the CEO. They would then follow up with a telephone call and try to come come up with a time and a date that all three individuals could do this five-minute telephone call. And so we did that for a number of months, and it was very successful. And a lot of people were surprised that we were able to raise money that way because it had never been done like that. And um, it was great. And then Senator Dole decided that it might not be a bad idea to get Fred Smith to help us set up meetings with the business roundtable members and that Senator Dole and Fred Smith would go and talk to them and, you know, ask them for a contribution and tell them how important it was. And um, it worked. I mean, it really did. We also set up um, an Internet. A lot of people gave um, contributions through the Internet. And, um, I mean, it just worked. It really did. But it did take a long time. We also had to um, – Senator Dole did not want to have an appropriations bill. He wanted the campaign to be able to raise the money from individual companies, individual people themselves, and not get an appropriations. He didn't think that that was appropriate. Well, after Fred Smith had done this about three months, he saw how slow the process was in getting big donations from the corporations. And he asked Senator Dole to reconsider an appropriations. And um, he said that he would. And he picked up the telephone and called uh, Senator Warner from Virginia and asked him if he could help with that process. And they were able to pass legislation. And I think we received $6 million from that. And it was through the sale of titanium, which I had never even heard of. And and the campaign staff said, oh, we'll never get the money. It'll take too long to sell it. They'll never sell it. They've never sold this before. Well, it didn't take that long. It only took less than a year to get that money. And so we were able to, you know, to get $6 million that way. But still that group, Save the Mall people, were still getting upset because they didn't like the location. They didn't like the design. And every time there was a commission meeting of fine arts or the National Capital Planning Commission, it was open to the public, so they would always go. They would bring their people in to testify on why they shouldn't, why we shouldn't do what we were doing. Senator Dole ended up going to testify before these commissions as well. And then Eleanor Holmes Norton decided she didn't like the design, she didn't like the location, so she was on the opposite side. And Senator Dole understood that, and they were able to work it, you know, that she would go up and say what she had to say. Senator Dole would come in and say what he had to say. And we finally won that battle, you know, with the location and um, the design. Uh, but before we won the battle, the Save the Mall can't, uh, group 
decided that they were going to take us to court. So we thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? If they take us to court, we didn't know if we were going to win or if we were going to lose. And Senator Dole decided that we needed to do legislation up on the Hill to come up with um, legislation to stop them from taking us to court. And we won that battle in court, and it went as high as the district court, I believe. And um, so we won that, and they finally gave it. They had to give in because we, they were going to go forward anyway. There was not any more that they could do to stop, you know, the building of, of the memorial. And as it turned out, we raised we raised more than enough money. We were supposed to raise a hundred million, and I think the final figure was a hundred, hundred. 40, I think, or 140 some, and we also set it up in the legislation that any money that was left over would go to the World War II memorial. That would be for you know ceremonies that they would have down there where people would come in and they would want to lay a wreath, like on November the 11th, Veterans Day. And um, so there is money. I think there's still 14 million dollars left in that. People still continue today to give money to the memorial, and that goes to that trust fund. And um, we did, you know, dedication, was very successful, and um, and it was really much better once it was built. I would go down there every month just to watch the status of it. And um, it just, it didn't seem like it took as long as it did to build. And then once it was built, everyone said that it had been there forever because it had it had worked. I mean, it had worked into the landscape. It wasn't obstructing any any views or any vistas or, or whatever. And now today, Senator Dole goes down and he meets with the veterans that come that are flown into D.C. Um, and it's an organization known as the Honor Flight. And so now he's the official greeter when these people come come in. And um, he usually goes down there like every Saturday, every Sunday, when the weather's nice. And sometimes during the week, he'll go down and he'll meet with them. They're flown in from different states. It's all paid for. Most of them bring at least one or two people with family members with them. And um, they come in, they meet the senator, they spend some time at the memorial, they have lunch, and then they're driven back to the airport and they fly back to their own state. So it's just a day trip. They've not had anybody come in from California because they haven't had a chance to work that out because it would take longer than a day. And I don't know how many veterans have come in, but it's been an awful lot, and it keeps getting bigger. It keeps growing. And they have to raise money. The Honor Flight Organization has to raise money in order um, for these veterans to come in. So, I mean, it's just, you know, wonderful for that. Um, Then after I worked on that, then I got involved with the Library of Congress, on the Veterans Project. Senator Dole was on that commission or board or however it was set up, co-chairman or whatever. And so now when we receive calls from different veterans on how do I get my story told, um, I refer them to the Library of Congress. I have little packets that I send to different people. And the executive director of the Veterans Project happened to be the same person that worked at the World War II Memorial in the veterans area by the name of Bob Patrick, and that's how I know Bob Patrick, and I could still continue to talk to him today, you know, to see if we can be helpful, if Senator Dole could be helpful. Um, so that doesn't take up, you know, really a lot of time, but it, um, we do get veterans a call in here periodically. 
And the other project that I work on is I'm the liaison person between the senator and the Dole Institute. Anytime they want to have any input into the senator, um, they go through me and then I put it into the senator. He says yes or no or whatever. And um, so I, that's on an ongoing basis. And um, you know, it's kind of interesting because Bill Lacey, who was, who was the executive director, left there and worked on the Thompson campaign. Thompson just dropped out of the race yesterday, so Bill will be going back to take up you know, his functions again because they're constantly trying to raise money for the Dahl Institute. So, so <clears throat> were you actually working at the Library of Congress in the Veterans History Project? No, I was, still, I was still working in with Senator Dole in the law firm. So I physically was here, and it was mostly emails and telephone conversations with Bob Patrick, you know, to, to do that. So you participated in the transition from Werner Liebert over to Alston Austin Bird. Austin Bird, right. And you came with the senator. Came with the senator, right. And had to move and, you know, do all that. Yeah. And, and also, I, I work with, at Austin and Bird from day one, worked with the Rusty, who was the D.C. person in charge of this office, and Elizabeth Germain, who was kind of like in charge of administration, and working out the senator's needs as far as space, um, equipment that we needed, and I did that on both of, both of those moves. So, <clears throat> after you left the... Um Sergeant at Arms office, then you have been with the senator ever since. Ever since, right? As he's moved from one law firm to another, right? So you may as well say that from 1981 until present time, I've been with the senator in some capacity. Right. It doesn't seem that long. <laughs> I'm going to take a pause here for okay. a moment. Um, I'm I'm curious to know your your first job in government was with the State Department. State Department. And what preparation, what qualifications did you bring to that first job that you, you had? Oh, gosh, that was such a long time ago. Um, I did not go to college. Um, when I was growing up and when I was at that age, um, my parents could not afford for me to go to college. And I really didn't, I didn't know that I wanted to go, not until later on in life. And then I didn't have a chance because I was having children and then because of the divorce you know, I had to provide for my family. And um, so what I would have to do is, is try to get positions that paid the most money. But as I was doing that, it was also taking up more of my time because with each position meant longer hours. But State Department came to the high school that I was going to. I went to a business high school, St. Patrick's Academy, um, in downtown D.C. And um, they talked about the different areas that they had openings. And so I just applied, like I did with the CIA, the Department of Justice. Um, and because I went to a business school, they always had different government agencies come in to try to recruit from within because St. Patrick's had a very good reputation because they taught a lot of the business classes. And a lot of the nuns had worked in private industry before they became nuns. So that was a really you know, good thing to, to know because they could share their experiences with us. So I, I worked in, um, started out in personnel, was there for a short time, knew it was only for a short time. Oh, plus I had to take the civil service test. So I qualified for a GS3 is when I started. Um, then from the Office of Personnel, I went into part of the State Department that worked with the United Nations. 
and I, you had to interview for those positions, and I was selected to be a secretary. And I can't remember the name of the office, but what it did was it would recruit individuals from around the United States to work for, like, UNESCO, different organizations that belong to the United Nations. And so we were instrumental in, in having that done. And I worked there for, you know, a pretty long time. And then I was having children, and after, when I became pregnant with my second child, decided that I needed to stay home. So for three years I stayed home, then my husband and I broke up and knew that I had to go back, and I didn't know where to begin. But I figured I should go back to government only because I, had, I was eligible to go back at the same grade that I left and the same salary. And when I went back, of course, it was making more money than what I did when I left because, you know, the finances had changed. And so I ended up working um, in personnel again. And I worked in the employee relations section of the Commerce Department, which handled all the labor disputes for the employees. It did the retirement system. If you, if you wanted to retire, you would come into our office and sit down with an expert. They would kind of tell you what you would be eligible for. Um, if you had bad credit rating, you were, had to be called into our office. You had to sit down with an expert to say, okay, now this is what you really have to do. You have to get on the right track. You know, we don't really want you to have your wages, you know, um, taken away from you because you haven't paid your, your bills. And um, so I did that for a while, which I, I learned an awful lot from that. The head of the personnel department, I'll never forget him. His name was Frank Seymour, and he was the director, and he saw my work, and he had me come down to his office and, and say to me, you need to move on. You need to get out of personnel. There isn't anything here that you're going to learn from. So why don't you start looking around in the department and see if you can't find another position that will help you grow, which I thanked him for that. I thought that was really nice that, that he did that for me. Um, and he did that to a lot of our employees, but I thought it was really great because I really didn't know that he even knew what I was doing. And so I started uh, putting my application into different positions, and I was one of two people um, that had put in for the Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce. And so I interviewed for that position. It was between someone older than me, and I was younger, and I was selected. And I did not know that at the time. I knew it after I had gotten the position because my boss, Ann Wexler, at the time, said, you know, there was another person that I was looking at, and I really didn't know what to do if I should go with the older person, go with the younger person. And she said she decided to go with the younger person. Um, she just felt that that would work better. So I was selected for the position. And after I had, and th that particular office ha was in charge of the field offices that were out in the different states uh, under the Commerce Department. And they, they had offices out in the states, and um, they did particular field work out there, and Anne was responsible to oversee that entire organization. Plus, she had other little organizations underneath of her. There again, if, if she was going to travel, I was the person that pulled together all her travel. Um, somebody else did her schedule. I did her day-to-day -day schedule, but somebody else did the travel schedule. And so that worked for a while, and then she was called out by um, 
Vice President Mondale to ask if she would come over to the White House um, to, to start up the Office of Public Liaison, and she asked me if I would be interested in going to the White House. Well, I had always been a career employee, really didn't want to get labeled one way or the other, Republican, Democrat. Um, and I knew that if I, were, if I did go over to the White House, I would have to give up my status as a career employee and take a Schedule A position. And so I really thought about it. I knew it would be more money, it would be longer hours, but I knew it was only five days a week. And um, I thought about it and I thought, well, how many chances do you really get to go to the White House? And I thought, you'll never get this opportunity again. I told, and I was honest with her and told her that I particularly didn't care for President Carter's policies that much. She said, don't worry about it. We're not going to be working on policy. We're just going to be working with outside groups. If they needed something, you know, we were to help provide information, meetings or whatever, you know, with the president. And so I said, okay. So we went and I worked there until um, President Reagan was then elected and I was lucky enough to stay in that position because Ann Wexler knew Elizabeth Dole, who was then going to be the new person in charge of public liaison. And then, you know, it went on from there. <laughs> how, how did you um, manage to balance your responsibilities as a mother with this pretty high, uh, highly intense I, job? I think I was very lucky in that um, we, I, I, we lived in Suitland, Maryland, my husband and the two children. And um, after we broke up, I knew that I had to move to a different location because the neighborhood was changing at the time. And it really wasn't safe in the neighborhood that I was li living in. I had three children at the time. So then I decided, okay, well, where, where am I going to go? Well, I contacted a real estate agent and I ended up finding a house down in Waldorf, Maryland, which was about, I don't know, 25 miles from D.C., which meant a long commute for me. And um, so I did it and um, bought a house and the school system down there was really, really good. Um, I found a wonderful babysitter um, that had three children herself, but they were around the same ages as my children and it just worked out fine. And my hours weren't really that bad when I first started with this particular babysitter. And it was not a nine to five job, but I was home by six. And um, I didn't have to work weekends and it just, it worked out. It was, you know, really good. But then as the kids got a little bit older within like a year and a half or two, um, they decided they didn't want to be with that babysitter anymore and I had gotten to know my neighbors real well right next door. She had three children that are around the same age as, as mine and they really wanted Barb Selpak was her name to kind of like watch my children and I felt oh this is great you know she's right next door and it just it just worked out and um, if I had to work late, I called her, no problem. The kids were able to stay there, or she would bring them home. They could get ready for bed. And, you know, that continued until they were teenagers. You know, so I was lucky that way. Oh, and I, I did, in the beginning, when I was still living in Suitland, I called my church because I really didn't know what to do as far as a babysitter went. And uh, the church said to me, we have this lady who just lost her husband and her family is concerned about her because she's spending too much time at the um, cemetery. 
and we think that it would be a good idea for her to watch your children. Well, I interviewed her, and she was this Italian grandmother-type loving person, and she really thought that would be a good idea. That The kids were like two, four, and six at the time, and she loved children. And she would come to the house to watch the kids, and um, it, it just worked out fine, and that's what I did. And she ended up making noodles from scratch because that's what she did. She still went to the cemetery, but not every day. And when she did go, she would take the kids. And um, it worked out. It wasn't just one day. It was not for a very long time. And my children and children ended up becoming very close to her. Um, but when it came time to move, she was kind of upset about it. But she understood why I had to move because the neighborhood was changing. And um, the kids had to get into a, a really good school system, and that's why I chose Waldorf. And when you moved to Waldorf, that was at what stage in your career? Was that when you were at State, or were you... Let's see, I have to remember. That was... I was still at the Commerce Department um, at that point. And then it was after the Commerce Department, then, you know, three, four years later, you know, I was at the White House. Was your former husband involved a lot in the kids? No, not at all. Even though he remained in the area, um, no, he was not at all. I mean, he, in the beginning, he would come and visit with them one Saturday, but as they got older, the kids would be still sleeping when he would come, and they were, at that age, they really didn't want to get up. And so then he decided, well, you know, it's not worth it to come all this way down here, you know, just to sit and just wait for them to wake up. And um, no, so he wasn't close at all. I mean, it was strictly on me. I was lucky to have the support of my mother and father who were divorced, um, I was closer to my father, and he was kind of like the father figure, and he would come down once a week and spend time with us, and um, that really helped. And my kids were very close to him until he died. And the same thing with my mother. Um, they were close with my mother, and I was lucky that at least both of them you know, got along. We weren't always together at the same time, but um, at least they had their grandparents. And your kids today, what... Uh, the, one lives in um, St. Mary's County. That's the, the Kathy, who's the second child. Um, she's, what, 41 now. She has a son. Um, she works. Her husband owns his own business. You know, they're really doing great. And I see them. I talk to them every week. And I try to go down there like every four weeks just to spend time with her and her husband and my grandchild. My um, son, he lives in um, Charles County, and he kind of has his own business, and he, he does fix-em-up type of things. He does painting. He does building. Um, he's married, and they have a daughter, and her name is Danielle. And then my other daughter is married to um, a Coast Guard. He's captain, captain in the Coast Guard. Currently, he's down here at working at the Pentagon, um, but it looks like he's going to be able to move back up to Boston where Michelle and TJ, my oldest grandson, um, is living. So he's been down, Tom's been down here two years, and now he's going to go back for two years, and then he'll probably retire from the Coast Guard, and he'll have like 26 years of service and go out as a captain. So we're all close, even though we're not, you know, really close together. 
Um, and I try to see Tom and Michelle at least four times a year. Either I go up there or they come down here, and it works. And, you know, I talk to them on every week as well. So I'm lucky that my kids have turned out to be very successful. Let's, um, <clears throat> let's start now with the finance committee mm-hmm. and, and that. Uh, you mentioned um, how, how you interact. Well, l- let me ask you again to just go over a little bit. Your interactions and role as compared with the office, which I guess then was in Dirksen. It was in the Dirksen building, right. right. And what was the division of labor there and, and what were the relations? Um, let's see, how do I want to say this? The, the personal staff was also in the Dirksen building. They were right down the hall from us, so it was easy, you know, to go back and forth. Um, I worked in the finance committee offices, and all of the lawyers um, were there. We had two floors. Social Security unemployment was down on another floor, and then the actual tax and trade attorneys were in the same suite of offices where I was. And I basically was the office manager there. Um, everything kind of like had to go through me to the um, staff director, which at that time was Bob Lighthizer. Um, so he was kind of like the number one person. So if you wanted to see him, you had to kind of like go through me to get to him. And he and I had to constantly talk to one another to let he had to let me know what was going on so that I could let some people on the staff know what was going on and what they, what was expected as far as, you know, work assignments. I was responsible in calling the senator's offices on both sides to let them know when we were going to have a hearing. So I had to keep track of all the hearings, um, working with the chief clerk, working with, you know, the different members, you know, of our staff, and they had to prepare all the paperwork, you know, for the different hearings. And then after you had a hearing, then you would have um, meetings with uh, Republican staffers. Then with then Senator Dole would have meetings with the senators. And then we would go to markup. And then from markup, it would go to the, to the floor to see whether it was going to get passed or not. Once it hit the floor, we were kind of out of it. Only the particular attorneys would go to the floor to work on that, but then we had to stay back and answer telephone calls. So we had to be brought up to date on what was actually going on because we would be getting calls from the public to find out, you know, where where do we stand. And then one of the other things that I had to do was um, the Congressional Record published the Daily Digest. So after I sat in on all markups, I did not sit in all hearings, but all markups I did, and I would have to keep the voting record of all the senators. I would have to keep track of the agenda items that were brought up so that after each markup session, I would have to give input to the Daily Digest Daily Digest, so that they could then print it in the congressional record. Um, so that's why I constantly had to be in touch with my boss, Bob Lighthizer. If he was not available, then I would have to go to the different attorneys um, to find out exactly, you know, what I should be, you know, letting people know. And then once I got that information, I would have to let the receptionist know so that they could give out information so that they would free up the attorneys just to do what they had to do instead of answering, you know, calls from the, from the public. Who was your main point of contact in the in the personal office? It was the senator <laughs> directly, <laughs> and and I, I did work with Betty Meyer, 
because she did the senator's day-to-day schedule. The senator did not spend much time in the Finance Committee offices. Um, if he did, um, it was just for a short period of time, I, I, you know, not very much time since it was so close to the committee hearing room. Um, went and he maybe would come down and I would place a couple of calls for him. But with Betty, you know, I had to work with her because I had to know what his schedule was and I would have to get hearings put on his schedule. Um, Working with Ruth Ann every now and then, but not that much in case we got a call from somebody out there wanting to know how to get an autograph picture or whatever. Um, And then maybe once in a while working with other staff members because they had to have a question answered, uh, you know, about some finance committee related issue. And because we were so close, um, as far as the offices go, you know, I had an opportunity to meet almost everybody on the personal staff. So. And what about your interactions with Joanne Coe? I, not on a daily basis with her. Um, I should back up though. I first met Joanne. I did not know Joanne Coe from the man in the moon. Um, when I was let go on January the 19th after Carter had left. Then there was inauguration. Then I went into the office on the 21st, the Office of Public Liaison, where I worked under the Carter administration. Joanne was sitting at my desk, and I had to be interviewed by Red Cavaney, who was Elizabeth Dole's deputy. He was Deputy Assistant Secretary. And uh, Joanne sat outside, but she heard my interview, you know, with Red Red Cavaney. And I guess they had to ask her after I left if they really wanted me to be back, you know, and, and work there. And she said, yeah, definitely. And so then I went back and I was able to stay there for six months. That was the first time I met Joanne. She and I hit it off, Betty and I hit it off, you know, right away. Um, because they saw that I was there to do a job. I was not out there to get anybody else's position because there's a lot of power things that kind of like go on with individual offices. And so with Joanne, she, she was part of the, another committee staff. She wasn't on the personal staff. And I would have to go and talk to her about politics or you know, how do I set this up or how do I set that up, just to get, you know, the senator's preference, because I couldn't always get to him, and I knew she had been around a long time, so she would advise me on a lot of things. Um, And there again, she would have to get information about what Finance Committee did, and so I was able to, you know, provide her with that information. But like I say, not on a daily basis. Um, and then I forgot about this too. When I was with the finance committee, Joanne, what happened? She was then became heavily involved in, in Campaign America, I guess. She did the vouchers, the payments of all the bills from the finance committee. I completely forgot about this. She did all of that. Well, now she wasn't going to have a chance to do that. Well, somebody on the finance committee staff had to do that. The senator said, oh, give it to Joyce. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what is that? I had no idea what this was about. Joanne didn't even train me. She was here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, she told me where the files were. And I was going to be, the Finance Committee was going to be audited within the next month. And she handed me the books. She handed me the files. And then I had to figure it out from there. 
Um, but I was lucky in that she kept pretty good files. And I called the dispersing office. That's the office that you have to kind of like work with, and they're the ones that pay the bills because you're given a certain budget under an appropriations. And um, explain to them, you know, that, hey, I, I'm new. I don't know what this is all about. You know, could you help me? And they were very good at that. And so then by the time I was ready to be audited, the books were ready to be audited, it worked out fine. Uh, Joanne was so busy that lots of times she would be six months behind schedule in paying the bills. So it was very hard to make the books reconcile. So I made a point to pay the bills every single month so that when it came time to do the audit that we were pretty pretty much up to date so that everything could be reconciled. Because it's hard to do it for a six-month period. And I'm not knocking Joanne, it's just that she had too much to do and she really didn't have hardly any help, you know. And I didn't have any help either, but, you know, you just, if you do it as you get it or try to do it every month, it just makes it easier to do that. And I guess I was audited maybe four times and uh, we reconciled. And then um, after I left there, I had to turn the books over to somebody else and, you know, it worked out fine. How large was the leader's office? Oh, gosh. Um, we had, I can't remember how many employees we had. We had press secretary, deputy press secretary, another secretary, two receptionists, um, somebody that was with the senator all the time, kind of like taking him from meeting to meeting. He greeted the visitors when they came into the office. I mean, the number of people have had that position over the years. Then we had a health person. We had um, an in, we had interns, which would depend on when the program you know was going to come over. We also had a fellow who did health issues. We had uh, we had Nelson Rockefeller. We had a speechwriter. We had somebody that handled boards and commissions. We had a deputy, chief of staff, deputy chief of staff, a tax person that did tax and trade. We had two support staffers, and then probably myself. So it was smaller. It was smaller than the personal office. office. Oh yeah, definitely. Quite, quite large. Mm -hmm. Nelson Rockefeller. What was his connection? Nelson Rockefeller. I don't remember now how we got him, but um, you mean the former governor and the former governor's son. Oh, I see. Yeah. Junior. Junior. Okay. <laughs> and he um, he worked on kind of like housing areas, that type yeah. of thing. And he was he was with us for about a year or two. Right. <clears throat> in the leader's office, did, did Dole spend more time? He was in there? the leader's office five days a week. He would go over to the heart office most of the time on Saturdays. Um, to do the paperwork over there. That's why it, it worked out best that when the mail would come in the heart office, all the mail went to the heart office. We did not get any mail except what was hand-delivered to us. Um, and then we kept a log of all of those. And um, that's why the, the mail would go to the heart office. Ruthann would sort it. Betty would add her input into it. It would all come over to me. It would then go into the senator, and then it would be you know, dispersed throughout the, the staff. And I would always get calls from the hard office to find out, have you seen my paper? Do you know where it is? And I would say, well, it's on its way back. It's still on his desk. Well, could you 
get it because I need to replace it with something? And I would say yes. And then if it would take a couple of days, why do you think it's taken so long? And I, I just made up things because he, he would have different stacks on his desk. The stack in front of him, I always called his think stack, which meant he would go through everything. You know, it would come over twice a day. He would go through everything and try to have it back out because he didn't like to have a cluttered desk at all. And things that he didn't want to focus on or things he had to think on would go in this particular stack. That's why I called it the think stack. Then, plus I had to set, set up, I had to come up with a system that would make it easier for him to go through. And if somebody were to come into his office, say another senator, or he was having the senator's meetings, you didn't want people reading things on his desk because people would do that. So I came up with a system that I would divide everything into folders. Things that he had to sign would be in one folder. Things that required action right away would go into another folder. And things that were less you know, priority would go into another one, and it worked. So he would go through and sign everything that would come out. Things that, you know, he could say yes or no to would come out right away, but those that he had to think about it would go into what I call the, the think stack. And it worked. I mean, it, it really did work. Um, and then I would have to call Betty most of the time and say, okay, the senator wants his weekly schedule, his monthly schedule, you know, or his three-month schedule. He needs it now. You know, she would have to make sure that it would, you know, be sent over because he was constantly changing his schedule. Um, he, When he was running for Senate, you know, running for re-election in the Senate, he had to travel, you know, and he would have to know when he was going to be back so that they could schedule, you know, like legislation and, um, you know, other meetings. And so he had to have that updated constantly, and so it had to kind of like come from Betty to me, to him. And lots of times he would call me down to the uh, cloakroom, and he was trying to find out when he was going to such and such a state so he could talk to a senator about, you know, the different things that he was going to do. And then he ran for president in 88, so I had to work with the 88 people in briefing papers and, you know, schedules. And um, then in '96, I had to work with them the short time that you know they were they were around, and you know I did that. So, um, in terms of the leader's office, uh, how much did Dole's personality set the tone for the office? Oh, that was funny. The minute he would come in the office, you could tell exactly what kind of mood he was in. It just all you had to do was look at him. Sometimes he would come through the back door. There were different. There were like three different entrances that you could go into to get into that office. Sometimes he'd go in the front door, but if he knew somebody was going to be in there, he was the type of person that really didn't want to talk to anybody when he first got there because he wanted to have his coffee, he wanted to see his newspapers, or he had something on his desk he wanted to kind of his think th- think about it. Sometimes he would come through the back door. Um, it was it was a joke really between the staff. Nobody really wanted to be the first one to go in and see the senator because knowing that he was in a bad mood maybe that day, he would. you always take it out on the first person. Well, then it would trickle down to the staff. So if that first person got it, not personally, but just, you know, got it because, you know, something had happened that the senator wasn't happy with, then it would trickle down. It would go to the next person. That would, person would be in a bad mood. And then finally it would get to somebody else. They would be in a bad mood. But then that would only last like five minutes, 
and then then the senator would <laughs> would come out of his office, and I always used to laugh because I called it his bed check. He would go to every single office in the leader's office to see who was here and who wasn't here. He was taking he attendance? Was taking, he was taking attendance without telling anybody he was taking attendance. And if he needed to see somebody, he would want, he would say, okay, where is so-and-so? When is so-and-so going to be back? This is what I want to talk to, to so-and-so about. And so there again, I basically had to know where everybody was, you know, and kind of keep track. And if I didn't know where they were, you know, maybe somebody sitting next to that person would know exactly where they were. I mean, we really did try to communicate. Sometimes you could, sometimes you couldn't. If, if you were really busy on the Senate floor, sometimes you couldn't, but you could always reach somebody. If you couldn't reach somebody, you could always walk down there and find out. I mean, lots of times um, the senator would be in the cloakroom and say, where is so-and-so? Well, so-and-so was sitting right behind him, and he didn't see him because there's so much going on. Or he was on the Senate floor, and, you know, he couldn't find Sheila, and she was in the cloakroom. But he would call the office to find out where so-and-so was when so-and-so was down there. So, I mean, it was that, you know, that type of thing. When he would walk through the office, you could hear him tap like this, and sometimes he would let you know that he was coming. Sometimes he, tap on. he would tap on the wall, you know, usually that you could hear him. Sometimes he wouldn't tap, and that way, you know, he would try to you know, just hear things. He would pick up things. Um, he had to be in the know on everything, you know, and he did. He knew everything. He knew more than all of us knew. Um, and it was really interesting to watch him do that. I can remember a meeting, I forget how many people were involved. It must have been 50 people coming in from different foreign countries. Well, he decided two minutes before that meeting he was not going to meet with them. So I had this whole room full of people, and he was just too busy. He wasn't going to do it. And so the person who was in, that I was working with, I can't even now remember who it was at the time, said, okay, I'll go in and I'll tell him this is why he has to meet with these people. He'd come out and he'd have his meeting. He was fine. You never know that he wasn't even going to meet with those people. That would happen a lot. I mean, it could be maybe we were having a, um, a senator's meeting. Well, he was just too busy. He doesn't know why he set that up. Well, and then you would have to go and explain to him why he set this up, and then he would come to the meetings, and then he would be fine. I mean, he wasn't moody, but he was just distracted. Um, but he had his little quirks. And then when it came time for him to leave, he would walk around, and he would say something to, you know, mostly everybody before he left. Not goodbye, or, you know, I need this tomorrow. You know, what are you working on? You know, that type of thing. And then once he left... <laughs> You know, the minute he got to the car, he'd be calling somebody because he felt that the minute he walked out that door, everybody else was going to walk out that door. Well, they didn't walk out the door. So that's why he would call different people, just to ask them different things. And it could be that it was the same question he asked before he left. You know, he just, he, it's not that he didn't trust anybody. He just felt that once he walked out that the day was done. Well, it doesn't work that way because the day wasn't done because you're preparing for the next day. Um, or you had to go down and, and work on the record, and Sheila and Witt, you know, they would have to meet with other staffers to talk about the next day's work. Um, but you could always tell his mood because all you would have to do is just look at him and you could tell. So this checking up on people, uh, that sounds almost a little paranoid. No, it's not. I mean, it's just that even now he'll walk around just to see who's here and who's not here. 
I mean, it's just that's just something that he's done. I found that when I, I, I could never understand it, but then when I went up to the deputy sergeant arms office, not that I would tap my hand or anything, but I would go around and see who was there and who wasn't there, just to know. I guess just feel secure that your staff was there and that they weren't taken off because they just felt like taking off, off or they just didn't want to come in. Um, you know, I just felt that you had to be in there five days a week, and you better have a good reason if you're not in there, and I think that's probably what he felt as well. It, it was hard to take off. I mean, we had to schedule our vacation when the Senate wasn't in session, but it was hard to do that because he was there. He was there while we were in session. He was there when we were out of session, unless he was traveling. But if he was traveling, he'd be calling, you know, because he would be thinking of legislation or, you know, different things out on the road. And um, he, he just wanted you there. And if you weren't there, we had to find you, you know. And that's just the way that it was. You so know? how did you schedule time off? Well, I scheduled my time. I just said, I'm taking these this week off. And uh, Sheila said it was fine, um, and I just did. And, and everybody else basically did the same thing, but we tried not to have everybody take off at the same time. We would have to, I would come up with a list of, like during, say, Christmas, different numbers where people could be reached in case he wanted to talk to them on the telephone, and that's how we did it. I mean, that was before you really had cell phones. Mm -hmm. You know, all you had back then was, was kind of like beepers. Now it's a lot easier with cell phones. He even has a cell phone, which I never thought I would ever see him have a cell phone. And he actually talks on a cell phone, actually calls on a cell phone, because um, he wouldn't carry a beeper. You know, most of the senators would carry a beeper, but he would never carry a beeper. Um, so you were really basically on, it was 24-7 when you were in the leader's office. Not so much, finance committee, it wasn't like that. He didn't come down to check to see who was there every day. He would meet with uh, Bob Lighthizer and Rod usually every morning just to go over what the finance committee was doing. They would come back. You could tell what kind of mood he was in because they would be in the same type of a mood. Um, so he didn't, he didn't have to. I mean, he just checked with Bob or, or Rod. In the leader's office, is a little bit different because you basically had to be there because you didn't know if something was going to come up and you were needed. So if you were going out to lunch, you had to let us know where you were going, just in case. He would, he would be okay if you were gone like maybe 30, 45 minutes. You were gone any longer than that. He, was, he would get impatient. And he would say, okay, I want to talk to so-and-so, and this is what I want to talk to them about. And so you would try, to, you couldn't reach them because there were no cell phones, you know. Were there uh, <coughs> days, I'll call them days of jubilation in the office? Do you recall any? Oh, gosh, that's hard to say. Yeah, well, yeah, anytime we won something, you know, as far as legislation goes, um, we did we did a lot of fun things in the office we did we had the um the Kansas City Royals in when they won the, the the championship we did the KU basketball team when they won we had the boxers in individual boxers in for receptions um we had um basket professional basketball teams in you know for reception those were really fun and he seemed to really enjoy those um, the other thing that he did, which was fun, I thought it was fun, uh, he would have a lot of visitors come in from Kansas, especially uh, kids. He would have them come over to the leader's office, and he would take them 
to every office inside the leader's office, and he would have them use the telephone for the kids to call back home to talk to their parents. Well, every now and then, he would come up to a, a, a individual and say, who are you talking to? I'm talking to my mother. Well, here, let me have the phone. And he would get on the phone, and he would talk to them. And you could just tell that that child was just beaming. And the other person on the other line didn't believe that Bob Dole was on there. But he did that a lot. And if you were on the phone, he asked you very nicely to please get off the phone so that this child could pick up the phone and call home. Um, so that was fun. I mean, there were a lot of, lot of fun times. Um, after, after hours, like after the Senate would go out, he would leave right away because most of the time it was late. Um, and the staff would sit back and, you know, they would just sit and just talk about the day or, you know, whatever. I mean, it was just, we all got along and we were all busy and we just knew that we were there for a purpose and that's what we did. We were all dedicated, I think. And we all enjoyed, you know, working with him. Um, and we had very little turnover on the finance committee staff and on the leadership staff. You know, most people, when they came, they stayed. Um, they left only because their internship was over. Um, they decided to go into public, I mean, private practice or whatever. But you would find the majority of the people really stayed. The finance committee staff didn't change at all, hardly. What about the mood of the office when it went from majority leader to minority leader? And for us, it, it, was, it wasn't really that bad. Um, what I didn't like was that the people that you had to deal with around the Senate, their attitudes changed. They weren't as quick. If we were in the majority, they were there just like that. Once we became in the minority, it, they weren't there just like that. They, it took a little bit longer for them to get there. And I was surprised. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't know that that's how it, how it worked. Um, so that's why it's more fun to be in the majority than it is to be in the minority. Because you're second, you know, you're not first. And, but they try, I mean, they try to be there, but if the majority leader wants something, they take priority. And then we're second. We were lucky in that we didn't have to change offices. I don't know what they did prior to Senator Dole coming. I don't think Senator Baker moved either. But I'm not sure. But at least with Dole, we didn't have to change offices. There was a point after Joanne was Secretary of the Senate, uh, we, we then went into the minority. Joanne did not vacate the Secretary of the Senate's offices when she should have, and Senator Byrd was furious about that. And so he told Senator Dole that he was going to change offices and that he found some offices that the minority leader's office could have, and it was down in the basement. And one of the rooms happened to be the coal room. It was the coal room way back when they were burning coal in the Capitol. Senator Dole could not believe that Senator Byrd was offering us an office down there like that. No windows. It was in the basement. Um, it was a very, very narrow walkway. And I went down there with him, and Sheila went down there with him, and we couldn't believe it. We came up, and then Senator Dole met with Senator Byrd, and they worked it out. And why Senator Byrd was upset was because Mrs. Byrd didn't have a place to sit when it came time for him to be the majority leader. And there was no reason for Joanne to sit that long in that office, but she did for whatever reason. And then she had to... 
uh, she then went over to Campaign America shortly after that. But it was not a happy time. That would, I think that was the lowest point, I think, that I had seen in that office. Did the size of the staff change when he went into minority? No. No, it, it stayed the same, yeah. I asked same. you about days of jubilation. Uh, you just described one of mild despair. <laughs> what about a few other low points? Did any stand out? Now, there weren't that many. Well, it was lo- low points depending on what you were working on. Like, um, the mood the mood would be low depending on what was going on at the White House, if things weren't working right out there in the country. Um, Senator would be involved in it, and, and that would be a, a low point. Um, if they were working on a nomination, which we did all the time, you know, the Bork thing and that was not good. The Tower nomination was not good. Those would be, lo- you know, low points, um, especially with Senator Tower because he was a colleague. Um, the Bork nomination, I mean, that was a lo- low point, not necessarily for the staff, but for the members. You know, it was pretty bad. So, I mean, you know, it just depend. It depended on the the legislation or, you know, what was going on in the country at the time. Just a few short things to to end up here with. Um, you mentioned that Dole didn't initiate much legislation. Right, as leader. Mm-hmm. Right. We came in the middle of the legislation because it would go from the committee to the floor. And then once it got to the floor, if it was a, a legislation that really needed to be passed or he, he, they wanted it to be passed, and it would only take the leadership working with, you know, other senators, then that's when we would kind of like get involved in it. And so we never really started anything. You know, we just came in the middle and then saw it go to the end. Do you, th- do you think that that um, troubled Dole at all, that... That he wasn't f- forced to be an initiator, or, or no, I don't think so. I mean, he was still on committees. You know, he still had input into the committees. Um, he still had input into legislation. It's just that he didn't. St- he would introduce bills, like for the White House, on behalf of you know that type of thing. Um, now, I, I think he got a lot of satisfaction out of you know just working it on the Senate floor, and if the White House wanted it passed, he would do his best to make sure that it did get passed, and if it did not get passed, then they would know why it did not get passed. Because one thing that the Senator always wanted was he always wanted you to be truthful with him. If you were not truthful with him, then he did not trust you. I would say all of the Senators that he ever worked with were honest with him, his side, the Republican side, the Democratic side. He knew where everybody stood on an issue. He knew what would get passed, what would not get passed. He knew if it wasn't going to get passed, well, maybe we could go this way, maybe we should do it this way, or I need to talk to this person, or I need to talk to that person. I mean, he would do his best to make sure that the right thing was done. And I, I used to enjoy watching him going down to the Senate floor because when he was passionate about something, he wouldn't have to read the legislation. It would come from the heart, and that's when he was at his best. If he went down, like he had, would have to do bicentennial minutes every day, uh, which was interesting, but it was also very boring, he would read it. Well, you don't get the same sense that it really meant anything to him. Um, but if it was something that was coming from the heart, 
you could tell it in his voice, and you could see it when he was delivering a speech, and he did that a lot. Who wrote those bicentennial pieces? Uh, that was done by Howard, no, that was done by Dick Baker, who was the historian um, in, the, in the Senate. He, he did them, we typed them up, and then the senator would go and you know, deliver that. Or if he didn't read it, then he would insert it into the record. And there was a book put out you know, with those. So. Um, you mentioned that you were scheduling a lot of uh, special interest people mm -hmm. in for meetings, business people and so forth. Um, some people have charged at times that, that Dole was in someone's pocket. I mean, oh, no, no, never. Yeah, speak about that. No. I mean, I can remember at the Finance Committee how the lobbyists would line up outside the Finance Committee doors to get in. Um, the senator would always joke with them, you know, going down the hall. Um, I, I would, no, he, he just never, he never did that. He would listen to people. That's why he would have meetings with people. That's why he would call business leaders in. Um, to get their idea, um, to, to know the pulse, um, but he, he was he was going to do what he felt was right. You know, he wasn't going to take anybody else's idea, or you know, he he didn't want so and so to do this, and I would do that. You know, that at least I never saw that. Do you think he sought a wide range of viewpoints? Yes, or? he did. That's why he called in. All, all the different um, business groups on different pieces of legislation, like energy, you know, the business community, the roundtable people. He, they weren't necessarily lobbyists. He would try to get the CEO. We always wanted the CEO of a corporation to come in. We did not want the person that was the lobbyist of a corporation to be at a breakfast meeting. It had to be the CEO. If it wasn't the CEO, very rarely would we go down to the number two person. And most likely, if you were the Washington person, you weren't coming. It was the CEO or really you're not coming to the breakfast. Because you get more out of the CEO than you do anything else, you know. And um, uh, the Washington person you could see any time. You know, the CEO you're not, you're not going to be able to see all the time. And this started the Finance Committee. I mean, when we had our breakfast meetings, the CEO, you know, was there. So did Senator Dole have a sort of uneasy feeling about lobbyists? No. It's just that, that he knew that it was better to deal with the CEO than it was to deal with anybody else. And so that you, you, would, you would get the, the, um, the feeling of the CEO and not the feeling of the person that ran the Washington office. So were you gatekeeping a lot and in, in, in not having, did lobbyists have much access to the senator? Um, they would, if he would walk by, you know, out in the hallway and if they were standing there, I mean, they'd have access that way. Um, most of the meetings that we had in the leader's office were with the CEO. If the lobbyists, if the Washington person came, Sometimes he would go in there. Most of the time, he would not. He would be out in the out in the reception area, or he would not come at all. Did um, you feel that was unusual? That, that was sort of well for me. No, I mean because that's, that's all I ever knew was. Even when I worked with Ann Wexler, we always worked with the top person, never with the lobbyist. You know, that's that's just the way that he always was. I have two other questions. Okay. Um, what about April fourteen? Was that observed in any special way? That was the day he was injured right, in 45. Right. No, not at all. Th that no. just passed by? It, it was just passed by. Um, 
he would always say something. I don't now remember exactly what he would say, but you would know that that was the day if you, if you really forgot it yourself, you know. Um, somebody would say something, not necessarily the senator. Or somebody on the staff would say, oh, today is, you know, mm-hmm. April 14th or whatever. Um, he, he never did. He, he, when we were in the Senate, he very rarely, if ever, talked about it. He's only talked about it since he has left the Senate. Um, and now when he talks about it, he gets real emotional. Whereas before, he, he did not talk about it at all, you know. The staff talked about it more than he did. Not with him, but individually. You were there when uh, in television was introduced to the yes. Senate. From your perspective, did you see any notable changes? Oh, yeah, really. I, I used to only like the radio because we used to have a, a little game that we would play if you could recognize the senator's voice on the radio. Um, and that's all we ever had, and we always had the radios on. Well, when it went to TV, I found it very distracting, the TV. The radio wasn't distracting because it didn't move. The television moved, and everybody had to have a television in each of the rooms. And between the television, the meetings, the doors opening, it was a lot of commotion, and you had to tune a lot of it out. You saw a big difference in the senators when they would go to the floor and you would watch them on television. They would be more animated. You couldn't see that on the radio, you know. I I very rarely went to the floor because I had no really business to be down there. I would go more to the cloakroom. So I, what I saw was just on the TV, so I didn't see too many live, you know, senators get up and speak. But, yeah, it changed a lot. It really did change a lot. They, they became more animated and, and more um, partisan, I think. And they used more props. I mean, they never had props before because they didn't have to have props. And they became more elaborate over the years, and more and more senators started to use them. So that, that part of it was interesting. And I tell you what, the other thing, too, is once I left the Senate, once I went up to the Sergeant Arms office, I did not turn on a TV set because I found that it just got on my nerves, you know, since I had to tune everything out because I had to focus on what I was doing. And if people were walking, and they would be walking around me, and I still have a hard time anybody walking around me, so I try to make sure that no one does, you know, intrude on my space because all those years and all those hours, that's all that happened, you know, and I didn't like that. So for a long time, no TV. Even now I have a TV in my room and I do not turn it on that often. I can turn it on, but if it goes up to a little bit higher pitch, it just it does something to me. I guess it just brings back all that noise. And it, it was hard to get used to the peace and quiet because I did miss the noise, but I prefer the peace and quiet. You have a um, individual office here. Right. Um, was that common when you were on the Hill, or were you among the No, um, in the Finance Committee, um, I shared an office with two other ladies. The Leader's Office, I was in with one, two, three. There were four of us in one big room. Sheila was behind me, and in front of me was um, Witt and another person in that office. Then we had an opening to the left of where I sat and an opening to the right. So not only were you having people coming in, and the senator would come around to the left. 
So you would have people coming this way, people coming in this door, going into Sheila's office, people coming out of Sheila's office, people going into uh, Witt's office. You know, so it was constant movement. Or the White House staff would be coming up, and they would have to sit down with Sheila and other staffers. You know, from other committees, um, they'd be waiting in the outer office. You know, where I sat. So you not only had that conversation, but the conversation behind you, the senator coming in this door, these people coming in here, and the phones are ringing, you know, and you're trying to concentrate. So it was constant. It was a constant thing. The only time it was quiet was when everybody left the office. That was the only time it was quiet. So one of the <clears throat> one of your really important job skills was to be able to filter yes. all of this out and be able to juggle, you know a multitude of things per day because I could set up like maybe three meetings in one day you know and, and it had to be put together within you know five ten minutes or maybe an hour's notice so you would have to stop at what you were doing and then go on to the next thing and then go back or then you were given something else to do so it was a constant movement and it was a constant I saw why he wanted things off his desk I was in a, a more terrible situation than he was because I constantly had people around me, and when staffers would come in, they would try to read what was on your desk. So I had to really be careful because I had his papers, and I think that's why I came up with that system with the uh, folders because it was more private that way. And then I immediately stuck it in an envelope, and then if somebody did come in, they wouldn't know what was in the envelope. So It sounds like <clears throat> this was a pretty... Exciting time. It was very life. exciting. It was also very intense. Um, and, and you don't realize how much information you're picking up. You don't know what you're learning until after it's over with, after you walk away from it, you know, and kind of sit back and, and think about it. It's like, oh my gosh, um, you know, I was part of this or I was part of that, and that impacted on the country. And I always, I always did this too. When I was at the White House, I felt like History was being made every single day, which it was and still is today. Up on the Hill, it takes longer to see what impact the legislation has on the country. So it's not immediate, even though there were times that what you were doing was history in itself. You know, maybe this was the first time the Senate did this or, you know, the Senate did that. So that was the remarkable thing, and I think that's what I take away from all of it was the sense that you were accomplishing something, you know, which not a lot of people can say that they, they have accomplished something, that you start something and finish it, or you, you know, you see the beginning, you see the middle, and then you see the end. So I can see why he, he feels so good about himself is because he's accomplished an awful lot. Is there some part of that accomplishment that is directly attributable to you? I don't think so. <laughs> I just don't think so. There's no McClooney footnote <laughs> no, to history not here? Really. No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. I, I just made his life a little bit more organized, I think. <laughs> I, I tried to at least help with, you know, making sure that, you know, if he wanted something, I could give it to him. And he still does that today. I mean, lots of times I, I say, he's the teacher. You know, and sometimes you feel like you're in school. You know, he'll come in and he'll start asking all kinds of questions. And it's like, why is he doing that? You know, why, why does he want to know that? Or he'll, like yesterday, he came in and he's, because he was having a meeting and he said, this fellow said that he raised $5.2 million towards the World War II Memorial and he's with such and such a company. And I said, no, he didn't, he didn't. 
well, how do you know that? And I said, okay, I'll show you. And then he watched me go into my computer, you know, get the printout so that I could show it to him that they were not on the list. And then he said, okay, we'll bring it into the meeting, you know, which I did. And um, it's like you're constantly being tested, you know, and it's always been that way, you know. And sometimes I think it's not that he's testing you. I, I think it's he's talking to you. That's his way of talking to you, of feeling comfortable in talking to you, you know. Because I think basically he's kind of shy. He's been described as a private, yeah, private person. Yeah, I, I really think so. And, and the, other, the other thing with him, which is really kind of interesting, is Joanne and Betty, and I know I, I can at times almost, almost anticipate what he wants. But you can't let him know that you anticipate what he wants because then he'll change in midstream. So you always had to kind of sit back you know, even though you knew that he was going to do this or he was going to do that, but you just had to keep it to yourself, you know. And what is, what is the motivation for his having to change course if you show that you know? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what the motivation is. I, I just know that he has a hard time trusting people, and I think that's because over the years, staff people have not done what he asked them to do, and he just... It was just lack of confidence in that person. But once you gained his trust, he was more apt to trust you to a point. You know, like, like we would do these breakfast meetings, and because of my training, I knew that I had to do thank you letters. And he told, I think he told Joanne or Mike Pettit or somebody when we were at the finance committee, I can't believe she did these thank you notes. I didn't even have to tell her. Because that he, people on, the, on his staff just did not do that. They waited till he told them to do something. Whereas to me that was an anticipation, you know, and I just knew that was the right thing. That was the right thing to do. Um, and just like about two weeks ago, he said the Dole Institute came out with a fall review of all the people that had given from what 04 to 06 or something like that. And he said, did I thank everybody that was on this list? Now, I would do the thank you notes to the big donors because the Dole Institute would let me know who they were and how much they gave. But we never thanked anybody who gave less than, say, $10,000. We did not go below that because there were so many people that were given money that all he would be doing was signing you know, thank you notes. And I said, no. I said, we didn't. And he said, do you have letters to show me that I thank these people? And I said, yes, I do. And there again, I felt like I was being tested. And, you know, why was he doing that? Because he knew that I did, you know, these thank you notes. So I had to call up Sean at the Dahl Institute, and we went over all the list. Well, he thanked the top list. He thanked the middle list. He, he thanked the other list. But he didn't thank anybody under... $900,000 and below. Well, now he wanted to thank all those people. Mm-hmm. So we thanked all those people. We never, we never did that. Um, so I was surprised. So when I did my memo back to him, I said, Senator, we did these pe- this group, we did this group, but we did not do that group. But this list does not include the people that have given the same amount of money in prior years. Because I just wanted him to know that this was not the entire list of people that had given. 
because it was misleading. Uh, and plus, I wasn't on that list, and I knew that I had given X amount of money, and I should have been on that list, but I didn't give during those years. And I felt that if I was in that category, there had to be so many others, and I didn't want him to think that other people did not give. And so, um, you know, I did them all. I did all the thank you notes, and so now everybody has been thanked. So from here on out, we'll have to do that. But he, so in my memo, I said to him, you thank this group, you thank this group, told him about the prior years, and um, if you want to see these letters, I have them in my file. Because I just felt, you know, that he didn't trust that I had thanked those people because he didn't remember signing the letter. And he has a very good memory. And he says, well, what about this person? And I said, oh, no, you thanked him. And I remembered that week because I have a pretty good memory when it comes to things like that. Anything that I touch, I usually can remember. Um, and so I said, okay, I put the offer out there. Well, then he never, he never said, okay, show me the letters. You know, so, I mean, sometimes I'd like to get back at him. I mean, only because I feel that it's my reputation that's on the line. I'm going to let him know in a nice way that, yes, I did do this, even though you think I didn't. You know, here's the proof. And that's the other thing with him. You had to show him that you did it, or you had to show him that so-and-so did it, you know, so... That's just, but I understand it because I've been burned by different staff people, and there's certain people you can trust, there's certain people you can't, but then sometimes you can't trust anybody because people have let you down. So I understand that. Mm -hmm. Good.